Sugar. We can't get enough of it. It feels like it's in just about everything we eat these days, at least all the processed foods that we buy. And we seem to really like the way it tastes. At the same time, the obesity crisis seems to be continuing, and we're all pretty concerned about it. You may have heard reports recently about how decades ago we seemed to think that fat was our biggest enemy when it came to food ingredients. And that led food manufacturers to reduce the fat content of the products and increase the sugar content. And now we're finding out that sugar may be just as bad for us or even as worse than the fat. Now, one area where lots of sugar seems to appear in our foods uh, that's become more and more controversial is in the area of sugar-sweetened beverages. Many of us will have heard about the attempts in New York City to limit the size containers you could purchase sugar-sweetened beverages in. And in the UK, they've introduced a sugar tax to try and curb the amount of added sugar that's in our foods. And while these efforts are great, they may be giving the impression that if we just deal with this one source of sugar, we'll make a large dent in the problems that result from sugar consumption and obesity in general. But what are the real risks from these sugar-sweetened beverages? And are these efforts to reduce sugar consumption a good idea, or are they just a well-meaning effort that we may come to regret? I'm your host, Matt Fox from the Boston University School of Public Health, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. Today, we're going to be talking about sugar-sweetened beverages and their impacts on our health. To do so, I am joined by Dr. Haley Vanek from the University of Buffalo, who was with us in episode one. Welcome to the podcast, Haley. Hi, thanks for having me again. And we also have a guest with us today who's an expert on the topic. Haley, can you introduce our guest? Sure thing, Matt. Um, so today we are very lucky to have Dr. Barry Popkin from the Department of Nutrition at the UNC Gilling School of Public Health. Dr. Popkins is a world-renowned expert in the study of obesity, both the determinants of obesity and the consequences of obesity in the United States and across the world. He's the perfect guest for our podcast today because he's a nutritional epidemiologist who has his PhD in agricultural economics and a tremendous amount of expertise on the topic of sugar-sweetened beverages and also real-world experience evaluating health policies that have been implemented to limit our consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages. So thank you very much for joining us today, Barry. My pleasure. So I think, as Matt said, we all know we should try to be mindful of our sugar intake. Sugar comes in the form of different molecules, most commonly fructose, glucose, sucrose, and lactose that produce a natural sweetness in the fruits and vegetables and dairy products that we eat. Your body uses these sugars for energy. We don't worry about these types of sugars as much because there's added benefits of eating fruits uh, like nutrients and fiber, but we worry about sugar that gets added to our food. These are added to our foods and drinks to make them taste sweeter. I recently read an article on the website Vox uh, that cited your work, Barry, highlighting that there are at least 60 different names for added sugar on food labels. Some you might be familiar with include high fructose corn syrup, malt syrup, icing sugar, and table syrup. So, Barry, the first question I'd like to ask you to get things rolling is sort of a basic question. What exactly are sugar-sweetened beverages? Well, the basic simplest definition of a sugar-sweetened beverage is any beverage that has added sugar in it. And that is the way for our taxation policies around the world we've defined it. If you have added sugar and, and you're a, a water-based beverage, we, we include it. Some countries don't include sugar-sweetened beverages when it's like flavored sugared milk and, and yogurt, but other countries do. So that's the only area where there might be some disagreement. But otherwise, it's essentially wherever there's added sugar to a beverage, we call that a sugar-sweetened beverage. Okay, so drinks like uh, fruit juice, or I buy my kids, you know, apple juice that says no added sugar. It, it, does that fall under the category of sugar-sweetened beverage? It doesn't. 100% fruit juice does not fall into that category. That doesn't mean it's healthy, but in, and we have some long-term evidence to suggest it's no different in its effects on our health than our what we call classic sugar-sweetened beverages like a Coke or a Pepsi, but we don't tax them in any country today. A couple are considering it, however. Okay. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, I'm conscious of what I give to my kids. And is, is the problem of sugar-sweetened beverages a problem related to 
childhood consumption or are we worried about this in adult too? Who are the primary consumers of these sugar-sweetened beverages? Well, clearly across the whole cycle, people consume it, but the largest consumers are those are adolescents and young adults. So we're talking about between the ages of 10 and 35, really. That is the bulk of the consumption in terms of high consumers in the country. But we have in subpopulations among Hispanics, among non-Hispanic Blacks, and lower educated whites, very high consumption in all age groups. Oh, that's interesting. And can I ask just when you say uh, high consumption, how much are we, are we talking about? It, it depends on the age, but let's say for an adolescent, that can be that 40% of the adolescents consume three to 400 calories or more. If it's a young adult, it'll be about the same. Uh, if it's a child, it's, it's much smaller amount, but in proportion to what they, they take in, it's very high. So and can saying, I ask how the, oh, uh, You're saying that that's three to 400 extra calories per day? Yes. Wow. Okay. And how does that compare to uh, what what is generally recommended in terms of the amount of calories that should be consumed from sugars? There, there's some controversy about that. Universally, everybody says 10% of your calories maximum, but the WHO actually recommends 5% of your calories. So if you're an adult, that's essentially your average about 2,000 calories a day, we're talking 100 calories, which is less than one Coke a day. And aside from the fact that children are obviously smaller and they consume fewer calories, do you think that these sugar-sweetened beverages affect kids and adults in the same way in terms of the impact on our health? Biologically, we know of no difference okay. uh, at all that we metabolize and we utilize the, the sugar in the same way, whatever our age group is. Hmm, that's interesting. And so can we, can we talk a little bit about what the, the health impacts are? What are, the, what are the main things we should be concerned about? Well, the, the, the main thing is when you consume a, sh a beverage, it does not affect your food intake. It's something we've learned over time for a lot of evolutionary and other reasons. We don't understand all the reasons. So if you consume a beverage like milk that's healthy for you or unsweetened tea or coffee, fine. But once you start adding sugar to these beverages, and it, it's just adding to our calorie intake for the day. So it's, it's not like if you drink a Coke, you're going to cut your intake of food at that meal. The opposite. It doesn't affect you. We have hundreds of clinical start, start trials. We have large random control trials. Every one of them show the same thing. Essentially, we don't compensate and reduce our food intake when we consume a beverage with calories. And it, do, is there evidence that talks about um, the link between sugar-sweetened beverages and health outcomes like obesity and cardiovascular disease, stroke? I, I feel like every other day I see a paper, you know, in, in some medical journal or some epi journal talking about, you know, sugar-sweetened beverages are bad for this reason. So what, where is the state of the evidence on that giant topic? The state of the evidence is that there's a wider range of non-communicable diseases. They range, they start with obesity. They certainly include diabetes, hypertension, gallbladder, uh, gout, other things such as that in one area. And, and 10 of the top 13 cancers have a, are related to this. So the World Cancer Research Federation, after spending millions of dollars to review this whole topic, has put sugar-sweetened beverages as one of its top targets. So we're not only talking about heart disease and a whole variety of other issues like obesity, we're talking about cancers also. And can I ask how, how well do we understand the link? In other words, the, 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 it's, it's from what you're saying, the, the relationship between sugar consumption and each of these outcomes is pretty well understood. Do we understand how these, um, these factors affect our health? Yes, there, there are actually two different pathways. Sugar is essentially composed of about half fructose and half glucose. The amounts may vary slightly depending on the source of sugar, but it's irrelevant. Essentially, all sugars are equal in their biological effect, whether it's high fructose corn syrup or regular natural sugar or beet cane or, or wherever it comes from, uh, beet sugar, excuse me. So 
that part of the sugar, the fructose goes, is metabolized in our liver. It creates uric acid. It has different effects. It affects fatty liver disease. It affects our kidneys in certain ways. Glucose goes through the stomach and is metabolized and has a different kind of set of pathways, each of which are bad. So the point is that together sugar has a lot of biological effects that, uh, that we have understood that have a direct effects on kidney disease, on diabetes, on blood pressure, heart disease, and cancers. And we've kind of begun, we've understood all these mechanisms. Some get quite complex in, in, in our system, but they all are well-documented, well-understood at this point. So to spin off that, um, do you think that the mechanisms are mainly through the causing obesity and then causing health outcomes? Or I think what I just heard you say is there's a direct effect of these sugar-sweetened beverages and sugars in general on health outcomes. They're both ways. So okay. through obesity, they have an effect on us. But independently, because of the way they're metabolized, both the glucose and the fructose, we know have other effects on us directly. Uh, particularly for fructose, where there's been a lot more attention in the last decade since we wrote an article questioning the whole issue of fructose, that fructose, because of its effects on the liver and where it's metabolized and what comes out of that and affects all the other organ systems, uh, particularly as one that we have shown in lots of clinical studies to have this very independent effects from its weight effect, which is also important. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So um, I'm, I'm curious to know, so the, the, one of the themes that we talk about a fair bit on this podcast is, is how good is the evidence? You know, when we, when we talk to people um, who are not, epidemiologists, um, one of the questions that we often get is, you know, why should I believe you on these things? Because, you know, I listen to the news and one day they tell me fat is bad for me. And then they tell me actually, you know, uh, certain fats are okay, but others are bad. And then next day, you know, maybe everything's okay. Uh, how, how good is the evidence around sugar um, being bad for us? And, and how do we know? Probably the evidence is much stronger than it ever was for total fat. Uh, and what's happened in the last 25 years since we really discovered this differential effect of, of beverages and food on us is that people have looked at the effects of sugar in an array of different ways, clinically, bio, in, in very detailed kinds of studies. They've looked at it in mice. They've looked at it in, in humans. They have long-term studies on it. And we have large random controlled trials on children and adults. Every one of these that has not been funded by the food industry has mm -hmm. shown mm -hmm. the same kind of adverse effects. Some funded by the food industry, they kind of distorted the results and, and played around so we didn't get the same effects. But otherwise, that there's unanimous uh, kind of feeling that in, in the scientific community that yes, sugar has been shown to have an impact. And it's not just sugar and beverages. About 40% about or, or more of the foods that we buy in a store that are packaged and processed have sugar added to them. So there's sugar not only in our beverages. So don't just think because you cut out your sugar-sweetened beverages, you're cutting out your sugar. It's, it's also there, and it's not just in breakfast cereals and candy. It's in almost every kind of pack category of packaged food. And it may be if you go to an organic store, it may be fruit juice concentrate, which is just another form of sugar. If you go to a, a, another kind of store where you're not looking at organic food, it may be uh, corn syrup or high fructose corn syrup or many of the other forms, dextrose, maltose, et cetera. But it's all the same effect. And if I could just follow up on that, because you specifically mentioned organic foods, do, do we find that organic foods tend to have less uh, sugar in them when they Not are processed? All. No. Not at all. If you go and look through the ready-to-eat cereals in Whole Foods or any other organic area at, at, at any supermarket, you'll find the same amount of added sugar. Wow. It will have the aura that it will say it's natural. It will be from fruit juice, but 
it's just another sugar. Wow. I think, you know, coming off what you just said about sugar being added to everything, and though it's not the topic of this podcast, I'm, I did a, a small N of one experiment recently where I stopped adding a sweetener to my coffee and I was using, Good for you. thank you. I, I'm working. I think we talked on the third cost podcast about my coffee drinking and now we're coming back to it. So I stopped adding, um, you know, a sweetener and I was only going with milk. And at first it was so bitter. It was almost undrinkable to me. I could not, I, it took away the joy out of my morning coffee. Oh and boy, I, we have to talk about that. I know, but, but over time, actually, my taste adjusted, and now I'm drinking black coffee. I don't even add milk to my coffee because, you know, your tastes adjust to the, to, to the lack of sweetness that's in your coffee that you're drinking. And I think the same is true of all of the foods we eat. I mean, I'm sure if you looked at things like tomato sauce, I recently looked at, and how much sugar is in tomato sauce and, and you know, breakfast cereal. Even if you think you're eating a healthy, a brand-filled, you know, fiber-filled breakfast cereal, there's for sure a lot of sugar added to that. So this is a, a broader issue than just the Sugar Sweetened Beverages podcast that we're talking about today, but it's amazing when you start to look how much sugar is in all of the different things you're eating. That's right. And, and, and it's not only in the food and and the things that we think about, but it's in the fruit juice bars, the smoothies, right. all these kind of things, and the effects there are no different. So the aura of health is being used and the beverage industry is buying up most of the fruit juice companies and fruit juice bars. Coke and Pepsi now own most of that chains, but they people think they're healthy. If it's a vegetable juice, it is, but if it's a fruit juice, it's full of sugar. It's, it's essentially like instead of taking six oranges, you've now taken those six oranges and put them into a little glass and you're getting that much sugar from them. You're not being filled like you were if you ate one orange. Now, can I, so, so along those lines, so obviously if you, uh, that makes perfect sense to me that if you take the juice out of the out of the um, the fruit that you're only really consuming the sugar, but but in terms of just fruit or as you said milk has I know it has a lot of sugar in it. Um, why don't we worry about the the natural sugars that occur in those foods when we consume them as they were intended? You know, as that we we would be concerned about them if we ate a lot of it. Mm. But you'll you can't you can only eat one or two oranges before you're filled. Yep. But you can drink six or eight oranges in one little glass and the same goes for 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 milk milk is healthy milk has a lot of important nutrients we don't need to add sugar to it we didn't have flavored milks consumed by 95 percent of the population until the last 15 20 years when the industry really started pushing it wow so that, you know, relates to my next question for you, which is, you know, considering all the bad food that's out there, you know, the fast food, the really highly processed, you know, the trans fats, all these things that we hear about are really bad for our health. How bad do you really think sugar sweetened beverages are? Aren't there more important things to focus on or, you know, some might say more important fish to fry than sugary beverages? I see what you did there. Yeah, huh? thank you. It's a little pun. Well, in reality, you're correct. There's a lot of inappropriate foods out there. But sugar-sweetened beverages, what we think of as a low-hanging fruit, because it has such a clear negative effect with no benefits, it's something that we want to get rid of. We would like to remove these from the earth diet, and that would really help to create a healthier diet. It's not the end. We consume a lot of very highly processed foods, high in saturated fats, added sodium, that are equally unhealthy. But, but as the number one target for the globe, it's sugar-sweetened beverages. And it's not just in the US where we, our peak sugar-sweetened beverage consumption was 2002 and three, and we've been going down since then, but we've only been decreasing it among upper-educated, middle-educated whites, hardly changed except upper-educated blacks consumption in the last 20 years. So we have increased the health disparities with sugar-sweetened beverages in the US and we need, to, we need to get rid of that in our country. And then because the markets in the US and the UK and Europe are not 
growing as rapidly. We are, the beverage industry is going after the globe. And mm -hmm. the rates of increase in the Chinas and Indias and other countries is enormous. And they're marketing it very, very hard. So this is a global issue. It sounds very similar in some ways to what the tobacco industry did when the markets became uh, less friendly to smoking here in the United States. It is in every way. They use the tobacco playbook not only to and how they're marketing the product, but they use it in how they fight advocates trying to, to tax and remove in one way or the other sugar-sweetened beverages from the diets of each country. That's interesting. Um, as epidemiologists, something we always think about and wonder about is this issue of confounding. So could the relationship between sugar-sweetened beverages uh, be due to the fact that, you know, they're associated with a whole host of other things we just mentioned, you know, some of the fast foods or the junk foods. So where do you, how do you account for that in your analyses when you're looking at the relationship with these two things? Is this an issue of correlation and not causation? How are we ever going to know the real answer to this problem? Well, it's a perfect question. And clearly there is a lot of confounding and even effect modifying in the sense that, you know, you consume often with your fast food meal, there's a certain sets of consumers those that are more likely to have an unhealthy diet are more likely to consume a lot more sugar-sweetened beverages. So that unhealthy Western diet tends to go hand in hand with the sugar-sweetened beverage uh, intake. However, because we have so many clinical studies, both looking at the compensation effect, just in small one-day, week, two-week kinds of studies, and we have these large random controlled trials in children, adolescents, and adults, we kind of, we know that keeping your diet the same, but adding and removing sugar-sweetened beverages, just substituting it for water or diet beverages has certain effects on our metabolism, and we know its effects on health. If we didn't have these random controlled trials, you're right, it would be very hard to, to, to take this apart because sugar-sweetened beverages goes hand in hand with unhealthy eating. So, so that actually is a really interesting thing because uh, it seems like a lot of the information that we get on nutritional studies comes from observational studies. And now what you're saying is there's been a lot of, when it comes to sugar-sweetened beverages, there's been trials. How do those actually work? I mean, do we have trials where people have been randomized to consume a certain amount of beverages, or I assume to stop consuming? That's right. And, and, and some of them, uh, shockingly in Europe, gave one group of kids sugar-sweetened beverages, wow. another group wow. diet beverages. In the case of one of the early ones, they had a, a store. They had people come in and buy the beverages, and one group that would be allowed in on certain days would buy sugary beverages, and they would replace them with the same look, but it would be with diet beverages on another day. And they found the kinds of effects I'm talking about. So we've had both. In the U.S., what the, the random control trials have essentially given uh, different age groups uh, diet beverages or water as the option, but have left people consume the regular amounts. So the results have been not as clear in some of the studies because uh, people may not consume the beverages they're given in the same way. But generally speaking, when you pull all the clinical studies plus these random control trials together, we have a very consistent set of results. You are correct, though that the observational studies and the cohort studies by themselves, because of the selectivity issue, wouldn't, would not look at the pro, would not show us the right result. But what people have used to, to try to get around that is look at a dose response. They've looked among sugar beverage consumers and look at the extra amount. If you go from two to four, what does that do to you a day, two or four Cokes a day? So, there are ways they've tried to tease out these issues, but I don't think they have completely. Mm -hmm. There is true selectivity on who consumes it. It's selective by race, by income, by education, and by the rest of your healthfulness of your diet. So it is very hard to, to look at these issues outside of random control trials of one or clinical studies of one sort or another.
One question I have uh, based on what you just said. So the, what are the outcomes they're looking at in these trials? So I assume they're short term. They're not following them for, you know, five, 10 years, obviously. To, no, to these, are, these, these trials, uh, the best ones are, are one year. And okay. sometimes a follow-up of a second year beyond that. Uh, but they're six months to a year mainly uh, in the good trials. The shorter term clinical studies have looked at metap mechanisms and such, but and helped us understand the compensation issue. But it's the long-term random control trials that we point to for the clear evidence on the effects on children or on adults. And do we have, um, one of the things we talk about a lot in this podcast is uh, how much. So, you know, if, is there any kind of way that we can quantify how much reducing sugared beverages from our diet would reduce our risk for some of the outcomes that you're talking about, like obesity or diabetes? Yeah, yeah. I think because of the uh, large number of different studies, we've been able from that to put different risk uh, values. We've had a lot of meta-analyses on issues that where there have been a lot of studies. Diabetes is one of the ones which, of course, because of the sugar effect and on the insulin and has a really important uh, direct pathway. And so we've had a lot of studies on diabetes and hypertension and heart disease. We've had many fewer on all the other health outcomes. And is there is there any way to to, to say how much uh, your risk goes up when you consume these beverages or how much it goes down when you stop? There is, it varies by the population. So mm -hmm. we know the risk will be different for Hispanic because of their, their, their different biology be, uh, and weight effects than it will be for non-Hispanic whites. But we, and so we adjust. So when people are trying to estimate from the Mexican tax on sugar-sweetened beverages, what's the effect? They need to use dose responses from epidemiological studies based on Hispanics. You can't, you can't use the ones from non-Hispanic whites. And that's one of the problems. Sometimes people take the bulk of the studies come out of non-Hispanic whites in Europe and US and, and apply them to other populations. And that, that gives a very low estimate. Interesting. Um, something you've mentioned a few times is alternatives to these sugar-sweetened beverages. So, you know, in my mind, one of the primary alternatives, aside from drinking water or milk, would be artificially sweetened beverages. So a diet drink or, or something like a diet Coke or et cetera. So um, are these healthy alternatives? You know, these, these diet Cokes, are, are they just as bad? You know, if they have zero calories, what's the problem with them? There, there's, there's no consensus in this area. Okay. That there is a group of people that feel that these beverages enhance our sweetness preference and we don't want them to be, and we'd like to remove all sweeteners. But in terms of the scientific evidence, in our country, what has been shown in a number of studies uh, in Cardia, in the Harvard cohort, is if you ignore the diet and just kind of control for it, it, you find one effect. But if you think of the fact that we cluster into two groups in America, healthy eaters and, and Western unhealthy <laughs> diet kind of consumers, we find that the Western diet consumers are the ones that consume the sugar-sweetened beverages and the healthy eaters don't. So if you don't interact the two, you find, uh, uh, you find diet beverages have an adverse effect. And so when you do, you find they have a positive benefit or no effect. And in the few random controlled trials, like one done in very good early one done in Copenhagen and others subsequently, where they've looked at diet beverages versus sugar-sweetened beverages, find a very large effect on the sugar-sweetened beverage and no effect on the diet beverage. And there's only one that's really been published that's looked at water versus diet beverages. And there, one study that was done using fairly sophisticated epidemiological methods uh, found that the diet beverage consumers actually consume less sweetened foods. Now, this was in an adult population that compared to the water consumers. So now we don't have these in children. 
Um, what we know is that if you're a pregnant woman and you consume sugar, your child's going to have a slightly greater preference. But in the end, we know that most of the population in the world has a high sugar preference. Uh, we know it both in terms of testing it directly. We also know it from an interesting example of China. When I started doing surveys in China in 1989, we had two grams of sugar on the average consumed in China. Today, the Chinese have adopted their taste preferences. The sugar consumption is so big that China has a sugar reserve along with a pork reserve to protect Whoa. against high prices. And the consumption is just exploding. And whereas you never had a pastry at the end of a banquet or a meal, they serve them now. Whereas you never found any store, any bakery, any city in the country, you'll now find them even the smallest towns, all selling sugary concoctions of one sort or another. And so I assume that there must be evidence then that that has come along with all the, the harmful effects that we've talked about? Absolutely. And China's uh, got one of the fastest growing rates of non-communicable diseases and mortality from it in the world. Wow. It's really incredible how much can change in such a relatively short period of time. It's such a fascinating epidemiologic study about the introduction of, of such a product into that market. It's incredible that you've seen that over the course of your, your research yeah, study there. Yeah, unfortunately, yes. Yes, unfor uh, definitely unfortunately, however interesting nonetheless. Um, so I guess the, the last topic I, you know, I think is really important and relevant for, for the listeners to hear your thoughts on are about specific interventions and public health policy that we can talk about to intervene on sugar-sweetened beverages. You know, if we know that they're so bad for us, why doesn't the government just ban them? Well, if we could ban them in any country, we would. And, and there's no country that's done more than try to tax them. So we have tax rates between 10% and 100%, depending on the country. Uh, we also have, so taxation has turned out to be meaningful. We also have another set of policies that's only now being evaluated in Chile that's being duplicated in Israel, Uruguay, Peru, and a bunch of other countries, which is putting a warning label on sugar-sweetened beverages and then banning the marketing of it in the case of Chile and banning regulated beverages from being in the schools. And that's had an even bigger impact on, on sugar-sweetened beverages, as we'll show in some publications and some very visible uh, medical journals this summer. So the reality is that we have these two options. We have warning labels and marketing controls as one way to control the industry. And we have taxation as the other option. And this is just what we found for tobacco. The same kinds of things that work for tobacco work for sugar-sweetened beverages. And depending on the country, you're going to see different things emerging. Uh, we now have gone from after Mexico's tax was evaluated, we've added next to 40 countries with sugar sweetened beverage taxes. So countries are taxing, but that's not enough. That's all, depending on the level. We have a couple countries like Saudi Arabia with a 50% tax on sugar sweetened beverages and 100% on energy drinks. And we have most yet have in the 10 to 20% tax range. And we're working to increase those in, in, in most countries. Wow, okay, there was a lot there. So I wanna ask a few follow-up questions. Um, so what do these labels say? What do these warning labels say? These warning labels say excessive sugar, too much sugar, and they put a stop sign in big black terms on them, or one country will put a triangle on it. Uh, in the case of Israel, they have a picture, picture of too much sugar, a teaspoon with the sugar, and then they have the words plus a picture so that the uh, less literate Bedouin populations can also be impacted. So uh, it depends on the country what they'll use as the warning label, but they all want it to be visible on the front of the package and be such that people will understand it and know that it means warning. It means stop or something like that. Wow. And have these labels been evaluated in terms of their effectiveness? Uh, yes. In Chile, we are in the midst. We published one paper, a focus group, and we've got four papers in process that, uh, and they will show 
a fairly significant effect. They'll show, a, in fact, an astoundingly large effect of about 25% reduction in the first 18 months of sugar-sweetened beverage consumption. And when Chile started these, these new regulations, it was the highest per capita consumer of sugar-sweetened beverages in the world. Uh, so we're learning, and we're learning, adding more understanding, and as we do, we're changing the design of taxes. So for example, the UK, which felt they wanted to really push reformulation, put in a three-tiered tax, a very low tax on low sugar ones, middle and high. Uh, other countries are taxing the grams of sugar like South Africa. And we don't know which is the best way to go yet, but we, we know that each of these has certain features. Some like the UK approach are pushing reformulation in a huge way, which is leading to a lot more diet beverage consumption. Others, uh, we're still of understanding. Okay. And so do, do, the, um, do those taxes tax uh, all sugar sweetened beverages the same or does it depend on the, um, the, uh, the, the branding of the product. You mentioned energy drinks as being one. Well, the energy drinks in those two countries is unique, although there are a number of other countries trying to ban and really cut energy drinks in many, many ways. The, uh, generally speaking, the taxes are based on either just defining everything as a sugar-sweetened beverage or having cutoffs. Like South Africa says the first four grams per 100 ml milliliters of, of, of the beverage, uh, we don't tax. And then we tax beverages above that. Mm. Other countries say we tax everything. The US cities all tax any sugar-sweetened beverage, whether it has a tenth of a gram of sugar added or, or 20 grams. And, and that just makes me think, so are there, are you aware of any efforts that are underway for uh, for the the beverage makers to try and uh, market their way around that problem? Oh, absolutely. But the major thing they're doing is reformulating. Mm. They have created diet beverage combinations with sugar-sweetened beverages. In the first couple of years, we saw emerging about 15 to 20% of our sugar-sweetened beverages in the U.S. had diet beverage sugar added with them. So they cut the sugar down. And we're seeing more and more of that. But what happened in the U.S. is because of the... So <clears throat> between 2003 and 2008, we had a huge increase in diet beverage consumption among upper-class whites, upper better-educated whites and higher-educated blacks. After that the blogosphere took over, scared people in this country that the, the diet beverages were poisoning you and yep. people yep. shifted to water in the US. Uh, and those were based mainly on a few mouse studies, which are a very imperfect model for sugar. Because it's certainly, it's certainly something that, that, uh, that I have heard, you know, a lot of, of people concerned that these these diet beverages have other health impacts, not just, you know, the, the concerns that maybe they don't actually uh, reduce your risk for some of these negative outcomes, but also that they have other effects like cancer risks and things like that. Right. And those are based really on the studies that didn't control for the effect modification of diet and mm. just kind of controlled in some way. Those were very crude epidemiological studies uh, compared to what we know in terms of the relation between diet and and diet beverage consumption. So, but the other thing just to point out is a lot of the concern came from mouse studies mm -hmm. and mice per gram of body weight have a hundred times the sugar preference of human beings. So wow. if you give them, wow. so you can't use a mouse model to study sugar and people in the field know it, but those who do push that and push these studies and find these dramatic outcomes really misleading the public. Wow. When I hear, you know, you talk about reformulation and substitution, I always, I always wonder, you know, are you, 
how do we know that we're not substituting or reformulating something that's worse than the original thing? You know, I think now this problem we're in, and hopefully the topic for a later podcast on vaping, you know, so smoking rates have declined tremendously, thankfully, but now we're in this problem where people thought this was a, a acceptable or not healthy, but acceptable, you know, alternate to smoking. Let's market this vaping and let people go at it for a little while. And now we're really worried about what do we do about this social problem of vaping? So is that, is that a similar parallel to what we're talking about with beverages? Well, it certainly was the case when we pushed total fat and, and people move and we got all these snack wells, these high sugar, mm -hmm. low fat kind mm -hmm. of products yeah. out there. But in the case of sugar sweetened beverages, we Right now, the, the consensus in the heart societies, the diabetes societies, the US Dietary Guidelines Committees and others is that diet beverages can help you have a healthy diet if you want to eat healthy. If you're right. going to be an unhealthy eater, a Big Mac and pizza or a Big and Diet Coke kind of person, it's not going to matter. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. That, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so it sounds like uh, taxation has been one of the main ways that, that policymakers have, have tried to reduce the amount of sugar, sweetened beverages and sugar consumption in general. Are there other efforts underway or, or effective approaches that have been identified right. to, to reduce this? Right. The one I mentioned, the labeling and marketing controls of Chile and banning in the schools these beverages, which we do also in our country for children, that is certainly been very effective. And the Chilean model is being replicated in a number of countries already, Israel, Uruguay, and Peru, and in another year, six or eight other countries. So that that's been the only approach of putting a front of the package label on something that's worked and cut down sugar-sweetened beverage consumption. Uh, industries tried to co-opt people across the globe, putting other kinds of labels on products, uh, even fighting us in countries where they're trying to put the warning label by trying to say, we want the traffic lights like the UK or the health stars like uh, mm -hmm. Australia, but they don't work. And they've been shown not to work in both cases. And so industry is pushing them, but they're afraid of the warning label, just like with tobacco. Now, mm -hmm. there's a step beyond that no country yet has tried, which is to put a picture like a, a, an ugly mouth from all the dental caries. Uh, that has an even bigger effect, just like it did for tobacco. So we know from the tobacco model, we can, we can do more. But it's again, the question of what countries are willing to do at, a, at this point in time. But as countries get more desperate with the increasing healthcare costs from obesity and diabetes and hypertension and such, countries are willing to do more things. You've mentioned a few countries that are sort of leading the way with these uh, these ideas, the taxation and the labels and such. What what's the state in the United States? You mentioned a few cities, but what's going on here? Well, the industry here has, and the way our food, our our political system has worked is that because we've had in California a number of cities San Francisco Oakland Berkeley for example uh, the industry did something very clever and they they worked out a way to kind of bribe the the government they they put a referendum up that said that would would stop sales taxes as a result the and they were told the governor will get rid of that law if you uh, will put in a preemption that won't allow any other cities in California to tax beverages. And the preemption is something they've been doing across the country, pushing to get state legislatures to say cities can't tax by themselves, only the state level can. And so now we're moving, we have Connecticut right now considering very seriously a sugar-sweetened beverage tax. We're hoping states in the U.S. will do this. Wow. And uh, so one of, the, one of the examples that I mentioned in the introduction that I think a lot of our listeners might be familiar with is the case in, in New York. Uh, I can't remember if it was New York City or New York State. Yeah, New York City. City. New York, New York City, City. Where uh, Mayor Bloomberg uh, tried to limit the size of the containers that could be used to consume sugar-sweetened beverages. And I think um, that that was considered to be have, have exceeded the, the regulatory authority that he had to be able 
to do that. Is that is it your assessment that that was effective? And in if it wasn't, do you think that, uh, or if, excuse me, if it was, do you think that that is something that should be tried? Um, or do you think it's, it goes too far? I, I don't think it goes too far, but I think it would be smarter to say for every calorie of beverages, we're going to price you the same amount. Mm. So to ch tax fast food and food outlets in that way so that supersizing becomes expensive. Mm -hmm. Right now, they make it such that if you go from a small to a large, you're paying almost nothing extra and you're getting an extra 30, 40 ounces of, of sugary beverages. So I think it's a question of how you design that. I do want to note that New York State almost had a sugar sweetened beverage tax of 18% a decade before Berkeley or Mexico tried it. But at that point, they had an acting governor at the last moment, Governor Patterson, who didn't really care about it, whereas the previous governor who kind of had to drop out of politics for, for various prurient reasons, he uh, was uh, not effective. He didn't really care. He didn't really push it. And it didn't pass the legislature. But it was very close. And if we'd had the, the, the right governor, we would have had in New York long ago an 18% sugar sweetened beverage tax. And the whole nature of taxation in America would have had a, a very different face today. That's interesting. So if you were voting and you had to pick, uh, you know, a taxation based on container size or a taxation based on the sugar content, I think you would vote for the latter based on sugar content? Right. Based on our knowledge today, yes. Okay. And I would actually even try to do it on for added sugar on any food as well. And we'll have new food labels that are going to talk about the added sugar on foods. And I would do it for added sugar on any beverage oh, or any, food. Any, oh. That's interesting. I think something that, that comes to mind when I think about this story of New York City and how it was overturned because it was you know, overreaching its, its regulatory authority is nobody seems to be complaining about public health policy that uh, prevents bad health outcomes due to lead in paint or now you know, due to cigarettes. So, so why are people so opposed to public health policy that regulates sugar-sweetened beverages? Well, You've got to look back on the tobacco laws. When Massachusetts was the first state to, to tax tobacco uh, 60 years ago, or about 50 years ago, uh, it took a decade before we had a national tax. And it took six states to tax one after the other. We had enormous negativity about taxing tobacco, don't take away my freedom, et cetera. And we've changed as a nation today where we feel about tobacco. So think in those terms. Now we go to sugar-sweetened beverages. It took tobacco 50 to 60 years to get 40 countries to tax it. It's taken five or six years, and we've already got 40 countries taxing sugar-sweetened beverages, albeit not at as high a level we want, but that will go up over time. And so we've begun to see much quicker, partly because of communications, partly because the healthcare costs are so clear and governments are, 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 have, are more fragile in terms of their e economies and health costs. Uh, and it happens quickly with sugar-sweetened beverages. Diabetes can happen very quickly if you consume that much sugar-sweetened beverages. We've seen that in adolescents now where we have diabetic adolescents and, and and school-aged children, and we never had that uh, 40, 50 years ago, and that's so, all because of diet. So you, so you mentioned specifically children, and I wonder if there are any specific efforts that are going on to deal with the, the uh, access to sugar-sweetened beverages in schools and around yeah. uh, regulations. There, under the uh, Affordable Care Act, there was actually a labeling law on, sugar, on, beverage, on food and, and, and fast food. But before that happened in the Obama era, they changed the school guidelines. And this part hasn't been changed back. They, that all elementary schools could not have sugar-sweetened beverages or diet beverages or the same in middle schools. But high schools could have diet beverages in the vending machines. But we essentially got rid of vending machines, which dominated the <laughs> landscape in America in, in public schools. And have there been any studies that have looked at the, the effects of that policy? Uh, not really rigorous, mm -hmm. adequate studies that, that I would give you a reference mm -hmm. to, no. Sure.
And but chocolate milk doesn't fall under those guidelines. Just chocolate to be clear. milk does not fall under those oh. guidelines. And in fact, when we've tried to ban chocolate milk, then the Republicans have gone back and when they've controlled Congress and removed those kind of bans. Is it because they really like to drink chocolate milk? No, it's because the food industry <laughs> likes to pay for adding sugar. They somehow think that will increase sales. We have no evidence it has, but they 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 just have this. They don't want to be regulated. Yeah, it's okay. really a big issue. So I guess I'd I'd love to to just end by asking you, um, what do you think are the the big outstanding questions or the or the the directions that the field is is heading in terms of um, you know, thinking about both the consequences of, but also the how we deal with the problem of sugar-sweetened beverages. Well, the out, the biggest question is what tax works best in terms of tax design, and we are too new into taxation to know that. The second question is what else, what kind of labeling, and how effective, and do we need marketing controls with that? So these are the outstanding large-scale public health problem questions in terms of changing the second part, the question of diet sweeteners, we don't have on children any random control trials, uh, which are, would be very difficult to do in many mm -hmm. countries, but not in others. And so we haven't funded that in countries which would allow them. Uh, we also don't have enough evidence on diet sweeteners, uh, even in adults with good random control trials. We only have a couple of them. We need more comparing water with diet sweeteners. And up till now, most of the studies were comparing diet beverages with sugar-sweetened beverages. So we need to understand, have more on the water side. Sure. And to, to follow up just quickly on that point, Matt, um, you know, you've raised this issue a few times of the disparities and different racial and ethnic disparities and socioeconomic disparities in, in consumption of some of these beverages. What do we do about that? Taxation is not going to, you know, it, are these taxes regressive? Are these taxes unfair to people of lower socioeconomic status? This, this issue of racial and ethnic and, and socioeconomic disparities is so enormous in this field that I wonder your thoughts on, on how we fairly deal with that. And actually, taxation is one of the best ways to, to cut the disparities. While it is true that the highest consumers are low income and the tax will affect them the most and it will be regressive in what economists call an economic perspective. From a health perspective, that's the group that consumes the most, has the highest risk of diabetes and hypertension, heart disease and cancers in our society and in half of two thirds of the world actually. So that taxing actually is progressive from a health perspective. And it's particularly progressive because those are the subpopulations that also are least likely to be treated or diagnosed and certainly not to be effectively treated for diabetes, hypertension, and so forth. So the health perspective says taxation is the most progressive method. The other method using labeling, marketing controls actually affects those who are most educated first. And, and is a longer effect to affect the lower educated population. So taxation is the most effective way to reduce health disparities. Well, I think that's the, the perfect place to, to leave things. I, I wanna thank you both for, for joining us on this episode. Uh, thank you, Barry, for all the information you've given us and, and Haley for leading this conversation. I also wanna thank Sue Bevan for producing the show. And before we go, if you are an epidemiologist, I wanna strongly recommend that you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June, so it's getting close in Minneapolis. Uh, it also gets you access to the SDR library, which gives you uh, access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening, and we'll be back with another episode soon.